This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. This presentation is delivered by the Stanford Center for Professional Development, providing graduate-level education to working professionals online, on campus, and on-site. For more information, please visit study.stanford.edu. Um, had an interesting experience this last week, actually yesterday, when it rained. Uh, I went with my grandkids to the Exploratorium. Um, I have a, a four-year-old grandson and a one-and-a-half-year-old uh, granddaughter. Uh, the granddaughter spent all of the morning dragging a stool around and going through each of the exhibits on the ground floor in the Exploratorium. Uh, the grandson uh, had a little uh, more focused experience. He spent 45 minutes playing with a magnet and iron filings and then proceeded to do everything else than the rest of the time allocated. Um, I think that the museum provides a uh, remarkable place for people to pick up and learn their, uh, their science directly in a hands-on fashion. Um, I've been a long-time supporter of it and uh, am very pleased to introduce, as our speaker today, Rob Semper, who is, he says, Executive Associate Director, whatever that means, for the Exploratorium. Rob. What that means is I've been there since 1977, and they've run out of ways to move the words around, and so they made a purposely ambiguous title. One that, uh, people ask me what I do, I can't tell you. Um, but for the purposes of this talk, before I begin, I want to let you know that I am a physicist. I still belong to the American Physical Society, so the things I'm going to say come from being a scientist. But being a scientist working in the world of public science education since 1977. And uh, I like to say the more I know, the less I understand about public science education. So you're going to hear me talk a little bit about where my thinking and where our thinking is about public science education today in general and at the Exploratorium uh, in particular. Uh, so, so let me start a little bit by talking about trends in science communication. Um, and some of the stuff you may know, some of this you may not know, I'll just go over it quickly and then I'll talk a little bit about the Exploratorium and how we're actually working today in doing public science education. The first trend, public interest. You may not know, especially living in, in Howard Halsey University, but there's actually a declining public interest in science. Uh, we're feeling it a bit in this country. In Europe, they're feeling it a lot. And in Japan, they're really feeling it, where everybody where science interest is basically in the older generation, people 60 years old and older. But while there's a lot of talk about science and how great it is, actually the public interest is beginning to decline from where it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's a serious problem. Um, it's also true, and this you probably have seen, is that science and politics have gotten intertwined in a way we've never seen before in this country, certainly in the last five or six years. There's been much written about it. Chris Mooney wrote a great book about it. But it's very true that science is now on the political agenda in ways that it was not 
it was fairly sheltered until the year 2000-2001. There's also an interesting change in the scientific side of science communication. Um, there actually was a very long-standing tacit agreement throughout the Cold War that science was an enterprise that was part of the national defense. A lot of support went into it because of that. And the quid pro quo was it was established that science, and I, I include science to be engineering, everything else, was really driven by a curiosity-based system. The fact is that really scientists could go wherever they wanted to go because we knew whatever would come out of that would be worthy of, of support and would actually change society in a positive way. And that's why there was a huge amount of resources put into science. That changed at the end of the Cold War. And in fact, there are a lot of questions started happening in the congressional level, in the, in the public's eye, about really how much support should be going towards a scientific enterprise. What should the public money be? What should be the role of scientists in society? And as a result of that, those of you who get NSF funding know, and other agencies have had the same thing happen, a concerted effort was put into the proposal process to make people actually start to talk about, in their request for funds, what were they doing beyond their own research? What were the broader significance of the work? Criteria two in the NSF proposals, for those of you who had to do those, no, they ask, what are the broad significance of your work? Not just what is intellectual significance. And this is all actually because of this changing equation where people who were funding the body politic that was funding science had felt it was time to actually see what people were getting for their dollar, which was different than the tacit agreement before. And finally, the international side has really changed in terms of science and in terms of public science education. Uh, some people are actually just worried about the awareness issue. Do people even know that science is around and as an important? And in fact, our friends in Japan are struggling mightily with this question. In this country, we've talked a lot about public understanding of science. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And in Europe, the equation has become, what about public engagement? How can the public actually influence what science is doing? What is the dialogue between scientists and the public? This is sort of a spectrum of work. And as you'll see, I'm going to start to talk about some of the new models for science communication that are coming to play because of this. So let me talk about first the old public understanding of science paradigm. This is the one that's actually operated in the United States for the past, uh, probably since the war, and even actually you could argue before the war. And the argument here is the problem really is the public science literacy. If they just knew more about science, the public would uh, vote for more money for X, usually my project, or not oppose Lab Y being built in my neighborhood, or make informed decisions in their life about what they were going to do around health and around other issues about the environment. Let me do what I want as a scientist and get out of my way. Or in fact, really be more like me. In other words, the notion of public science literacy was we actually need people to know a little bit about science. Who we know a lot, they might know a little, and that will actually solve the problem. And so then the, the, the paradigm was public understanding of science. Now, I actually had a lesson taught to me that this was not true by the director of the Exploratorium, Frank Oppenheimer. The Exploratorium I'll talk about later was founded by a physicist, Frank Oppenheimer, brother of J. Robert Oppenheimer, a stellar scientific family of the, of the mid part of the last century. And uh, uh, Frank was up on Capitol Hill testifying why it was good to fund museums. And the argument that was being made was, well, an informed citizenry would vote in a more informed way about issues around science and technology. And he was talking to his colleague. He said, you know, I actually don't believe that this is true. He said, uh, my brother, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who invented, who was the, the leader, often called the father of the atomic bomb, and Edward Teller, who was called the father of the hydrogen bomb, both of them knew more about the hydrogen bomb than anybody in the country technically. And they both completely disagreed about what 
to do from a policy perspective about the hydrogen bomb. So in fact, knowledge does not equate to necessarily better decisions. It's certainly important, but it's not necessarily a precursor to better decisions. Understanding is actually not probably the key issue about science communication. Um, so what's going on here? Well, we talk about engaging the public with science. So on the one hand, we have science and scientists and the enterprise about science. On the other hand, we have the public and people who are involved, whether they're the lay public, whether they're people in public policy, legislators, whether they're students or teachers of science. And we often think of this process, in fact, scientists often think of this process as kind of a push process, right? Basically, I can make, tone down my lecture, maybe talk slower, talk with fewer words, and I can reach the public with this kind of dialogue, and that really will help the public learn. In other words, it's a, it's a microcosm of an educational process, actually a microcosm of teaching professional scientists. That's the way scientists tend to think about this. I certainly thought that way when I entered this field. But actually, what we need, of course, is a pull process. We need a process where the public is engaged and is actually the active agent here and wants to extract what they want to extract out of the scientists and scientific community because we all know that learning is a process that individuals do, right? Learners learn. It's not that teachers teach. Learners learn. It's an active process. And the same with the public. It has to be thought of as a pull process. What is it about the public that can actually, what, what, can, what kind of mechanism can be put in place that will actually enable us to be a pull process? So I want to talk about a few different paradigm shifts that are going on and then talk about particularly how the exploratorium fits in, into this world. Um, this is a quote from a, a, a favorite person of mine, Daniel Yakolovich, who is a, is, is a marketer, one of the big marketers of, of the last 20 or 30 years. And he was talking about the notion of science and science policy and scientists in the public domain. And he says, in today's public domain, scientists are not nearly as influential as they should be based on their knowledge, their experience, their numbers, the things that they do. But to better engage the public, scientists should shift from the goal of science literacy, the goal of reaching sound public judgment on scientific issues, and use specialized form of dialogue to advance this goal. In other words, it's not a matter of knowledge transfer, of making every citizen into a junior scientist or into a scientist light. It's actually to think about this as a scientific problem and understand what is our goal. Our goal is to actually reach sound public judgment in science, on the one hand, for the broad public. Of course, our goal is also to have some of the publics engaged in the exciting interest that we're doing. But the broad public, it's public judgment that we're serious about. And the question is, how do we talk about this in a more specialized form of dialogue? And this is not a dialogue that scientists are very used to talking about. And that's true about science education for the general public as much as it is about science policy questions or issues. And let me give you three examples of where this is different. You may have recently seen this article in Science Magazine uh, this April by uh, Nisbet and Mooney, uh, April 6th article on framing science. And they make the argument that actually scientists ought to get really good at framing their discussions. Framing, that some of you may know about framing, it's been talked about a lot in the political domain. Framing is where you actually try to talk about things in terms that are not actually about the thing, but actually are about what you're trying to get across about the thing. And the example that's been used a lot is some parties use framing when they start to talk about tax. They talk about tax relief or something like that instead of, uh, instead of tax for benefits for society, for example. And that tends to ring a different chord in your head than when you think about it just basically in form of taxes. Framing turns out to be really important because it turns out that most people, particularly in issues about voting, et cetera, actually don't understand every single issue. And that doesn't help you vote sensibly. You actually form some kind of a heuristic or some way of thinking about the issue. You either trust people by what they're saying, you hear certain words, 
And that's how you tend to vote. And so when scientists engaging, if you want to think about global warming, et cetera, any of those issues, you have to actually understand how to talk about it in a way that the public gets, and not think of it as an educational process of just showing the data or just showing the answers. So framing is an example of moving beyond understanding. Another is dialogue. Um, there's a lot of cases now uh, happening in, in Europe. There's some beginning to happen in this country uh, where you actually have dialogue and debate between scientists and the public. But to do that, you have to have a public that actually knows enough about the, the, the subject matter to actually have the debate and dialogue on an equal playing field. And so the, the notion of conversations where you invite the public into a conversation that's about science is an important part of dialogue. And we'll talk later about how we're planning to do that uh, in our new exploratorium space. But this dialogue is actually not a comfortable one for the professional scientific community to be involved in because it actually involves a dialogue. It's not a one-way conversation. It's a conversation, meaning people may hear things that, that, that they may not be, want to hear. And it has to actually feel even, not like we know the answers and you get to ask the questions or something like that. It has to be back and forth. And third, and you have one down here, I think, in, in Palo Alto, there's actually the notion of social conversations around science. Not only not only academic conversations, or literary conversations, or even debate conversations, but social conversations. And there's been a movement recently for these cafes scientifiques. This is a picture of one that's actually in the Dana Center, which is in the museum, a Science Museum of London, which programs conversations about science every night of the week in a social environment with, with that great lubricant alcohol and food and conversation, in a way bringing science into the societal structure. What do people like to do? Rather than sit in a lecture like this, maybe they go and want to talk around a table about science. So these kind of social enterprises are also ways to begin to move beyond the understanding, beyond the teacher lecture mode of science and information. So uh, I'm going to now talk about the exploratorium in light of all this context and really make the point that one of the things that can help this dialogue between scientists and the public is a mediating agent or a transforming agent. And I'll remind you all, those of you who haven't had physics, about the transformer and the marvelous property of transformers. Transformers, of course, are active devices. They match impedances between one side and the other of the transformer. What happens on one side affects what happens on the other side. And until you get these impedances right you, for, for impedance matching, you don't actually get an efficient transformation. And so I'm really talking about transformative agents, not conduits, but transformative agents where the two sides of this discussion get to push back. In other words, I'm arguing that science centers are really great transformers, and that the scientists and the public can use a, an enterprise like the Exploratorium, like other science centers, to actually facilitate this engagement back and forth. Because you, what you need is a process, actually, that matches the impedance, if you want, of the science and the impedance of, of the public. So now, if, you, if you'll let me, I'll do a quick detour through the history of science museums to try to talk about where we are going in our new venture in terms of science fit. So um, typically, we start with the history of science museums back when they were the history of science museums, uh, developed around the 1700s. The Ashmolean Museum in Oxford is usually given the credit for being the first. There are a few other history of science museums, and the one in Leiden and, and one in Florence, a wonderful museum which is still there about the Museum of Science in Florence. Uh, these are places that were collections of historical scientific artifacts. And uh, they have, uh, you know, the, 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 the test tubes that were used, the, the objects that Newton used. Um, in, in Florence, you can see Galileo's finger. I don't know if you saw that when you were in Florence your last trip, but you can see uh, his finger, if you want, on display next to the telescope and, and other items. Uh, historical items, right? So history museums. Um, and then around the 1800s, a new set of museums came into play, um, which 
we can put under the rubric of technical museums, the best example might be the Musée the Arts and Metiers in Paris. And these are museums that were actually designed to have exhibits of machines and instruments and models. And they were actually there partially to help educate a public about the Industrial Revolution and the components of the Industrial Revolution and had an educative function as well as, a, as an object function. So they were there to help people understand things about technology, the technology of the time. And they certainly led to uh, and were part of the great industrial fairs that happened around the 1850s to 1900s, which actually then stimulated a whole set of additional technical museums uh, around, around the world. Leading to the science and industry museums, which we actually have quite a few of around today, the Deutsches Museum in, in Munich being the, the, the classic one, Museum of Science and Industry being a direct copy of the Deutsches Museum that was built in, in, at the turn of this century, the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, which is a, was this original science and industry museum, and some others, they had historical artifacts, working models, and they also had interactive participatory exhibits on mechanics, on electricity, uh, things that were part of their collection. And they really focused on science and technology together, the relationship of the two, which was sort of the tenor of, of, the, of the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century. Um, leading to the Science Center movement, which really developed in the second half of the 20th century, and the progenitors of the Science Center mo movement, like the Palais de la Couverte in Paris, which is attached to the, to the science, to the education university in, in Paris, or the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry in Portland, or Valuan in Eindhoven, Civic Science Center. These were museums that were actually, many of them, outgrowths of the World Fair exhibitions and began to have experimental demonstrations of scientific principles. So they kind of moved from the technical thing to more like, let's see how light bends through a prism, those kinds of experimental demonstrations. And then this leads to the, the educational science centers. And you here in the Bay Area happen to be in, in the hotbed of them because two of the three major models of science centers came right out of here. One, the Exploratorium in San Francisco, which I'll talk about, but also the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley, which started within the same year. These started in, in 1968, 1969. And these were actually educational institutions with no object collections. They didn't have any uh, old, old musty things. They didn't have any historical artifacts. They were about education first and foremost. And they got developed because of the, form of the work that was happening in the educational realm in the late 50s, early 60s around science education, accelerated by the Sputnik, which you just heard about the 50th anniversary of, and also the educational movement in the 60s, which was about learner-centered education, which began to, um, uh, de which, which put the learner in the hands of the individual as opposed to the institution. Those two ideas merged together to produce these two science centers, and another one, the Ontario Science Center, which started exactly the same year, which has exactly the same exhibits, but actually, and came out of the educational ferment that was happening in that case in Toronto and in Canada. And these all had their roots in the science education development of the time and really became the, the, the antecedents of the science centers that we know about today, of which there are many of them. There are about 350 in the United States. There's about 500 of these science centers worldwide. Um, there are about five, 58 million visits annually made to science centers every year in the United States. Uh, and that's mostly uh, unique visits, so that's actually a pretty good chunk of the population. Um, these are private, nonprofit unit, uh, institutions in the United States. In, in the rest of the world, they tend to be more government uh, agencies. Um, there's also, of course, all the natural history museums that have become much more involved in current science activities. 
And in the Bay Area, you've got five science museums besides the Exploratorium and the Lawrence Hall of Science. You have the Chabot Science Center, the Tech Museum, and the California Academy of Sciences. And then you also have science exhibits in some of the children's museums. And there are a lot of science centers now in the rest of California uh, uh, all, over, all over the state. So this movement, which was not in existence in, in 1968, is now a robust educational enterprise and has a role to play as the intermediary or the transformer between the world of science and, and the world of the public. Okay, so enough about the background. Let me talk about the Exploratorium now. Um, Exploratorium's mission is to create a culture of learning through the creation of innovative environments, programs, and tools that help people nurture their curiosity about the world around them. It's a mission statement. We try to remember it. It's a little bit long. It probably should be a little tighter. But you notice that it's got some interesting features to it as a mission. It's actually to create a culture of learning, to develop environments, programs, and tools. And key, it's to help people nurture their curiosity about the world around them. It's not actually to teach science facts. It's not actually, uh, ha doesn't have a didactic purpose. It has a, a role about establishing and nurturing and maintaining and developing people's curiosity, their self-interest in learning about the world around them. The Exploratorium was actually started by this man, Frank Oppenheimer, who, after he worked on the Manhattan Project, was a cosmic ray physicist, uh, had the misfortune of getting tangled up in the McCarthy uh, witch hunts, communism during the, the 50s, lost his job at the University of Minnesota, uh, and was relegated to become a rancher in Colorado for 10 years in the back countries of Colorado with the FBI and a house right down the street from his ranch watching him. Uh, he, uh, in around, he was in Pagosa Springs, which you may know is in the southwest corner of Colorado. Um, about 10 years after he was there, the high school lost its physics teacher, and they asked him to come and teach physics. He said, okay, he started teaching it. They had no equipment, so he went out and started to teach by finding things in the junkyard, springs and motors and car parts, and started to teach physics. And people suddenly noticed in the state of Colorado, the science fair winners were coming out of this little tiny town in southwest Colorado, and noticed him. People at the University of Colorado uh, rediscovered him, rehabilitated him, brought him back on the faculty, and he, he wound up his faculty days at the University of Colorado uh, in, in, in this physics department. Um, but of course, this, this had changed his life. He had been through a number of life-changing experiences, the Manhattan Project being the big one, but this other isolation being the other. And he slowly, he quickly moved from doing physics research. He made a famous statement that there should be actually uh, 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 science research interest contraception so that older scientists wouldn't actually do all of the discoveries so younger scientists could actually have fun and, and play in the field of, of, of science research, which I thought was interesting. Uh, so he quickly moved out of science research and moved into science education. And he had this idea that he could actually develop ways for people to explore and experience uh, science directly. His first foray in that was actually to rebuild the physics freshman physics lab at the University of Colorado in the attic of the physics building, where he, instead of doing, you probably all took freshman physics, right? You basically do this set of experiments, at least it used to be that way. I don't know if it was when I taught it. You do this set this week, this set this week, this set this week. He said, no, what I'm going to do is have 10 different experiments. You can do any one you want to when you come in. You just have to do all 10, sometimes during the, the semester. But you can pick which one you want to do that day because your interest in what you're doing is actually pretty important. And actually, they don't really tie into the curriculum that well anyway. So why don't we just try to have you be self-motivated by what you look at? And you have different ones, so not everyone's doing the same thing. And people could actually share in kibitz what they had done in the past. And it was a very innovative laboratory and actually stayed there as a laboratory 
through all these years at, at that level. Sort of like modern physics lab moved down to the freshman level. Um, so that was his first foray. And then he began to, uh, through a, a set of experiences, traveling through Europe, visiting museums there, being asked to work with the Smithsonian on a, on a science education plan for their new museums, began to get this idea that he might want to start a museum of his own. And he was fortunate, he, he began to look, where, where could I do that? And he realized that if he came to San Francisco, where a lot of his friends lived, he might have a chance out here because there are a lot of physicists and other scientists that have been involved with his work at UC Berkeley, uh, here at Stanford and other places. He thought, maybe I could do something out here. And uh, through, a, in a sense, a miracle of life, um, this building, the Palace of Fine Arts, and I don't know how many of you have been to the Exploratory. I should probably should ask that question before. So you've been inside this amazing building. You may not have stopped around the outside. It's pretty interesting on the outside, too. This building was there available and empty. This had been built for the Panama Pacific Exposition in 1915. It uh, had been built as an art museum. It was meant to be torn down. Uh, people loved the building so much and loved the remnants of this World's Fair that was a dramatic World's Fair there that they kept the building and, uh, but they couldn't figure out what to put in it because other museums had already built art museums and it was kind of a crummy building for an art museum anyway. Uh, so it was maintained as a sort of a warehouse, uh, a, a bunch of uh, books restored there, phone books restored there, tennis courts were held there, cars restored there. Uh, but in, in the mid-60s, this, this building from the fair was rebuilt because of, uh, 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 through a citywide campaign to actually remake it so it was, it was starting to fall apart. But there's still nothing on the inside. And so he came in 1968 and through a series of very good friends in the city was able to secure access to this building, uh, 150,000 square feet of empty shed space in San Francisco for a dollar a year. And our rent was a dollar a year until three years ago when it uh, got a little bit larger, it went up to $400,000 a year. Because the city decided, well, you know, gee, maybe a private place could actually should pay for something like this. Forgetting about the fact that we gave all this educational support to the students of the city and the citizens of the city, et cetera. But um, that's what happened. So our rent went from $1 to $400,000. There's an end to the tale. I'll tell you at the end of the story about what's happening because of that. But this building was there, available to him in 1969. And uh, he basically came and uh, got a machine shop and uh, a few of his friends and uh, people didn't need to be paid and then a couple people he found a little bit of money to pay began to start building exhibits. And in 1969 in the fall, probably September we think, they left the door open on a hot San Francisco day and somebody walked into the museum and they realized that they were open. Now, this is not the way normally museums open, you realize. Most museums spend a lot of money up front building everything and they have a grand opening. That's not the way this place started. This place started really as an organic bootstrap operation and developed its work over time. Everything it developed that you see inside that place has been built inside that place by people working inside that place. And that's a key feature of its, of its, uh, of its nature. So here's a picture of, of the Exploratorium today. Um, it's a museum. It has around um, maybe 450 exhibits. It has a lot of program parts I'll get to in, in a minute. Um, but it, 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 in a sense, was one of the early progenitors of the Science Center movement uh, around, around the country. And Frank's vision of the museum, uh, I think, is encapsulated really well in this statement. The whole point of the Exploratorium is to make it possible for people to believe they can understand the world around them. In other words, it makes them possible to believe that they can understand the world around them. It's not actually to even understand the world around them, just to believe that they can. I think a lot of people have given up trying to comprehend things, and when they give up, with the physical world, they give up with the social, political world as well. 
if you give up trying to understand things, I think we'll all be sunk. Clearly a, a message from someone who's been through some amazing events in his life and, and the notion of individual understanding being key, in, individual participation in the world being key uh, to the future. So let me talk a little bit about what we're doing now and, what, and how we're organized, because I think it may come into play about uh, some of the features of the exploratory I'm going forward. The thing that, that Frank did that is actually unusual is that he actually married the concept of a museum, a public space, a public gathering space, with the idea of a laboratory, a research laboratory, to create the exploratorium. And I, th I think uh, Dennis said wisely at the beginning, it's actually a research laboratory that happens to be a museum. One way to think of it is that it's a place where a lot of people are discovering things, creating new ways to discover things about the world, and the public gets along, comes along for the ride. They get to be invited in to be part of the results of that discovery, and even to make some of those discoveries themselves. And as such, it has very much of a laboratory feel as well as a, as a museum field. And in fact, its organizational structure is very much around kind of laboratory kinds of ways of organizing us, rather than traditional uh, museum ways of organizing. And I want to point out that this model actually uh, had a lot of power because uh, this is actually the same thing that happened at the turn of the last century when people decided to try to develop a better way to educate the medical profession. Until uh, till, uh, sort of the 1910, 1920 times, basically doctors and medical profession were, were educated in academies. These are private, mostly private academies where people learned about medicine in a, in a kind of a, 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 a very um, kind of precious way, I might say. Uh, and there was a, a study that was done at, at the turn of the last century called the Flexner Report, where the idea of a teaching hospital got invented. The marriage of a hospital with a university to make a teaching hospital. You have a fabulous one down here. Um, those were new inventions. They did not exist, really, until this report. And that same notion made a very powerful combination of research and experience, because you had real live patients in around students being trained to be practitioners around faculty doing research on the forefront of medicine. And that was a wonderful way to create a, a workforce. In a sense, the exploratorium is somewhat the same way. It's married the museum concept and a laboratory concept uh, kind of an invention creative concept with a public concept to help create people who are more curious and, and more uh, 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 sort of interested in looking at the world, world around them. So our program organization strategy um, actually follows this model. We actually think of the base of the Exploratorium as a learning laboratory. It's fundamentally about learning, about education, about creating new ways to learn, new opportunities to learn. But we have to do that around people. and so. Uh, in a sense, the people are our visitors. In other words, the, the fact that visitors are there are really critical to our operation. And the visitors are both people that come and visit our exhibitions, but also people that come to our online experiences, because those are kind of experiences that are somewhat similar to coming to see the physical place. These are people that come by and interact with us in periods of, of, of maybe hours or a half days. There's also a group of people that we work with, which are educators. Th these are people who teach other people. And we use this environment that's been this laboratory environment and this exhibition and web environment to help teach the people that teach other people, be they teachers or people that build other museums around the country. We we'll call them educators. And in between, there's, a, there's an area which a lot of museums have worked in in the past, and we're actually developing a much more robust program to deal with, maybe we could call them learners. These are people that may come for more of a structured experience. They may come to the museum for classes, 
They may come online for course structures. They kind of are coming for something in between, uh, on the one hand, visiting for a few minutes or a few hours, and on the other hand, actually having the job of teaching other people. So this, this program strategy is to organize ourselves to do all of this work, but to have the laboratory, the learning laboratory, actually loop all of these things together. So the things we learn in one domain help support the work we do somewhere else. The exhibits that we have on the floor help us teach teachers. The teachers, the science staff that's in our teaching program help build new exhibits and offer courses. The whole thing is, in a sense, trying to encapsulate in one environment both the laboratory and the audience that we're working with. So just some details. We have about 500,000 annual visitors at the Exploratorium. We are involved in both science and art as approaches to help people understand how to look at the world around them. Uh, we have worldwide dissemination through the exhibits that we build that go to other places. So we actually build things and have public visiting our stuff in other places around the country, around the world. Um, some examples, our new exhibit that I encourage you to come to see is the Mind Exhibit, Mind Exhibition, which you just opened actually a month ago. Uh, on the mind, on attention, emotion, uh, how we actually uh, perceive the world through our head as well as through our senses. It's a really uh, interesting exhibit, very dramatic, and has involved a lot of current research in cognition and other kinds of scientific research that pertains to the mind that's portrayed in exhibits on the floor. We also have a webcast studio on the floor, which allows us to bring the outside world into the museum, where we, we can actually have remote cameras. And we just did a webcast from Antarctica, from the um, telescope in, in Antarctica, in South, that's being built at the South Pole talking with the scientists about how they're building, allowing the public to interact with those scientists. So it's kind of a window onto the world of, act, of science. Um, online, we've developed an online experience which parallels the, the museum experience. We have about 25 million annual visitors online to our world. Uh, and here we've tried to actually have both windows onto current science as well as online activities that are like our exhibits uh, so for the public to relate to. Um, it's a picture of our, of our website, which I'm sure some of you have been at. Here again, we've tried to focus on current research as well as on, as, as on science education activities. And this is a website we built on a scientific mission to the uh, extremophiles in Kamchatka, which is a, an NSF-Russian joint research site on the Kamchatka Peninsula. Uh, we're building a new uh, science um, website on the process of science, the nature of scientific evidence, how do we know what we know, trying to get beyond just the facts of science, but get to the point about scientific thinking the difference between data and evidence, for example, which is not readily apparent. Uh, and I want to remind you that one of the reasons that the public has such a hard time understanding science is their last course that had anything to do with science was most likely high school chemistry or high school biology laboratory. And those of you who remember that laboratory know that laboratory was nothing about doing science. That's not what you do as a scientist. That's not what you guys are doing. But that's the experience people have about science, is somehow taking a little pellet and dipping it in, in something and seeing if it blew red or yellow and trying to figure out the answer to get it correct because it'd be graded on it. So the process of science is completely uh, mysterious to, to the public, and this website is attempting to, to uh, address that. On the teacher side, we do professional development for teachers. We don't do very much going out to schools with our, to do with kids because we realized early on if we could work with teachers and they worked with kids, we could actually work with a lot more kids. And so we now work with 850 school districts around the country, we have 2,500 regional teachers in the Bay Area that are alumni that come back for Saturday sessions at the Exploratorium. Um, some of you may have had teachers that actually um, went through our Teacher Institute, because this Teacher Institute has been going for 25 years now. And we have teachers coming back all those 25 years. 
here's a picture of Paul Doherty. Someone mentioned Paul, or friends, I think some others in here. Paul lives down here, one of our master teachers, teaching some teachers on the floor of the museum using the exhibitry. And just to leave, just to put in a plug for the elementary side, we have the Institute for Inquiry that works with teachers at the elementary side and actually works with teacher developers, the people that teach teachers. Turns out no one educates the people that teach teachers. They just happen to do that, get that job by accident at a, in a school district. So we work with them as well. And then we also work with museums around the country. We worked with, we've worked with 100 museums in a focused way with our Center for Informal Learning in Schools, which is a project with uh, UC Santa Cruz and King's College London to actually do research on the relationship between museums and schools and to do research on how museums can actually support education writ large uh, for students. Um, we also have what's more traditional, youth classes, member classes, outreach programs, and we're working on developing online uh, courses in the future based on our material. So um, just to give you a snapshot of this, I just thought I'd throw up the, the, before I talk about the future, as I throw up a funding profile, just to give you a sense of how a place like ours is funded. Uh, we're a private nonprofit organization. Most museums are that way. Uh, in our case, we get a balance of funding, about 39% from the public, about 29 private contributions, about 3% from our investment endowment, which is not very big, too small, as our, as our, our board is uh, actively working on to work on. And our earned income through sales of tickets and through selling uh, products is around 29% of our budget. So we have kind of a mixed economy, if you want, of a funding profile for the place. Now Dennis talked about uh, where we're going in the future and our plans there are just now starting to, to, to come out and, and uh, come into public display but I was given permission to show the next picture which is that we actually are working on relocating the Exploratorium to Piers 15 and 17 on the Embarcadero in San Francisco. You probably may have read about this in the paper. Um, we've actually outgrown our site we are paying rent, and we realize we pay rent. We have a choice of where we pay the rent to and what we use that money for. And so that started us looking a few years ago. And uh, through a lot of uh, different processes, uh, we finally settled on working with the city to gain access to these piers, 15 and 17. Uh, these are large piers. Overall, the entire pier space is about three times the size of the Exploratorium footprint. Uh, we're proposing to occupy one of the two, one of the two piers. There's two of them there with a valley in between, uh, which is about 50% uh, growth on the inside of the Exploratorium. And then the opportunity is the outside, which we've not had the ability to do uh, where we are in San Francisco. Um, the great news about these piers are they're piers. They're pier sheds. They actually look just like the building I showed you when they're empty, the first building of the Exploratorium. They're, they're, they're warehouses. That's, and so in a sense, they're, they don't actually alter the character of the Exploratorium. What they do in a very dramatic way has changed its location. Because this is a location that has public access, it's a location where, where it's under development, it's near the water, it has uh, an outdoor that's wonderful. Uh, it has a lot of opportunities uh, for us to extend the work that we're doing in the current Palace of Fine Arts and to move it into, into new directions. Um, now we don't have very much yet on the, t on the table about what we're doing down there, but I thought I would tantalize you because you might be interested in with a few of the things we're talking about down there that would actually extend the work, not change the work, but extend the work that we're doing. Uh, we have the opportunity to do a Bay Observatory. Obviously, we now are at where we, now we have windows. We can actually look out. We have no windows in the Exploratorium. We actually get a chance to do something with the Bay. What's going on in the Bay? What, what's, where's the, what, what, what's the active part about the Bay? 
We also get to do outdoor exhibits, including large exhibits, and we're building a geometry playground now that is actually geometry, playground activities that are based on geometry to help people think about geometry. We have an actually at the, at the port, this is an interesting thing, at the end of the pier, that's actually a deep water port, and we have the opportunity to actually dock research vessels as they come into town, whether they're oceanographic research vessels or others, because it actually has to be maintained as a dock. So we thought we might make use of it by putting a scientific uh, rationale on there. Um, also, we have this opportunity, because it's a pier, these two piers, and we have this, this middle space, we actually have room for our partners and tenants and other people to join with us in the science education enterprise, and, and in a sense form a, like a, a, a Zocalo, like a, like a town square in, in, uh, in Mexico, on science education and bring in other partners, whether they be uh, uh, energy R&D labs or other people that might want to be close to us and, and reach out to our public. Um, inside, we plan to actually extend our work by building a new feature, which, is a, which we're now prototyping, a tinkering studio, which will allow the public to make things as well as to play with our exhibits, a la the Maker's Fair that, that was recently here in, in San Mateo. Uh, and we've been done, doing some experiments now that are really quite exciting in that domain. Um, instead of building a theater, we're proposing to build an environment that would let us do these science cafes and actually have a social environment to talk about science, and to talk about ideas, and to make it much more social than uh, a lecture theater uh, format. Uh, we'll have many more classrooms, which allow us to do professional development, not only for teachers, but for scientists who want to learn how to talk to the public, as well as for museum professionals. And we're really looking upon the site as an opportunity, as, as, as a location where people can branch out to do tours of the Bay Area around science. Not as a place that everyone just comes in and stays, but as a location for them to move out into new directions. So it's almost like a visitor center, or a science visitor center uh, for, the, for the Bay Area. So there's a lot of great opportunities. We're just embarking on the project. It's going to be about a four-year out project, so don't stop coming to the Palace of Fine Arts for the next four years. I've heard a lot of people say, well, we'll come to your place after you move. Well, that's four years away. You've got to come back sooner than that. Um, but it's very exciting for us, and I'm hoping that these ideas resonate with this topic, which is expanding science communication in new ways, because I think this facility is designed to be that kind of transforming agent between the world of science and the world of the public. And I would just close with, with a, a sort of a statement that um, um, we're really not talking about science and society in all of this. We're really talking about science in society, if I can get to it. And I would really argue that really it's up to all of us, scientists, engineers, researchers, to get involved if we're going to actually make this bridge between the public and the world of science. So thanks. I'll take some questions. So that's great. So um, there's a whole panoply of ways this works. All right. So at the one hand, we have a very active volunteer program, which people, it's a very much of a personalized volunteer program. When people come in, we have a great volunteer coordinator who actually does an inventory of what people like to do and want to do and feel like they can help with, and then works on placing them within the organization in a, in a, in a key way. And we have some fantastic volunteers who are helping us from a, you know, from a weekend to uh, a lifetime. We've had people, volunteer explainers, who actually spent years there volunteering and explaining. So there's a lot of opportunities that way. Um, the next is knowing 
what people know. We have a lot of projects. I just talked about the MIND project. That involved a lot of work with researchers, including from this campus, who are actually working on research in that domain that fit then a subject that we we're moving ahead on. So it's kind of an inventory issue about learning the projects we're doing and then finding out, well, this might fit. Um, a third is people come to us all the time with ideas for exhibits. You know, that, that's what everyone wants. And that's great, and we have a lot of great exhibit developers on staff. What we've learned is we have to actually not just have people build exhibits and bring them in and drop them off. They tend to either break in the first five minutes or, or something happens. But we are willing to sort of talk with people about their ideas, and sometimes they resonate again with the projects we have, and, and that, that becomes interesting. Um, and finally, I think it's encouraging people to come and visit the place or support the place or become members or encourage people, friends to become members or finding out how we can help education in your school because we can work with the teachers in your school. In other words, that's really important. Being part of the scientific community in the Bay Area and being active about it is really important. And we're there to help or provide support services, et cetera, for it. So anyway, any of that stuff is interesting to us. And of course, your donations are very helpful, too, because we are a private nonprofit. And I showed you that little pie wedge of, uh, of contributed income. It's very important to us, that part. And as we move into this new building, it's going to even be more important to us. You have this, you have this um, long, elaborate mission statement where you say, you know, people need to concentrate on science because otherwise they'll lose interest, and maybe they'll lose interest in social issues as well. So is really the guts of your mission, do you think, just making people ask why and how a lot? Is that really? Yeah, I would say that developing and maintaining and stopping the um, degradation of curiosity is one of our biggest missions. We all know the kids are very curious. And we all know that they start to lose that for various reasons along the way. So maintaining it, stopping it from going away is really, really critical. Um, I think um, there's some interesting research that was just published by Robert Tai, who was able to look at, he had longitudinal data from kids who were in school in the 60s and where, what they wound up doing in life in, 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 you know, 20 years later, which is an amazing piece of study. And one of the questions they asked was, in, that st in these research studies they did in the 60s, they said, well, are you interested in science? Are you interested in, in, in science and science career? And so it turns out for eighth grade, he discovered that the biggest factor for people going on into science in eighth grade was predict the biggest predictor was interest in science more than aptitude. In other words, if you looked at the data, there, that there were people who had lower aptitude but had a strong interest in science that went on into a scientific enterprise. Now, that's about going on to science. We're not just worried about getting people into the pipeline. But this fact of interest is really important. It's highly underrated in terms of the educational process. We don't talk about motivation. What is it that motivates people to want to learn about something? So curiosity is not just, well, I'm curious about something. I think it actually is tied into motivation to actually find out the answers. I think that's fundamentally what we're about. That's why it's called an exploratorium. It's not the Hall of Science or something of that sort. It's called the exploratorium for that, for that real reason. I think the same principles apply to engineering, which is kind of a close cousin of true science. I think, yes, I do. I mean, there's clearly. There's, you know, there's clearly some edges or differences here, but I would say yes. This is one of the reasons of why we actually want to move into the making and creating as well as the, uh, the curiosity-driven inquiry side, because we think we're not doing enough to foster the whole things that you'd want to do if you want to support, say, people interested in engineering or interested in, in, um, in those kinds of skills. But I would argue that actually being curious about 
why things happen. I mean, my favorite books, you know, like the famous books by, um, uh, what's his name about why buildings stand up? I forgot his name. It's uh, the guy in, in New York. He had a wonderful education program in New York City schools based on those books. And that's actually questions people don't even ask about. Like, you know, how does this thing, what's going on here? You know, what, so I would argue, yeah, a lot of the fundamentals are still the same. There are different outcomes that you might move forward on or different experiences you might want to add to that. Um, uh, but I would say both would come out of the same germinating uh, concept or idea. Uh, regarding your push and pull diagram, public and the science community, the last seven summers I've spent my summers with biologists from around the country at a field camp in the Arctic. My question to you is roughly how much of a sense do you get at the Exploratorium of people looking for faith-based science and intelligent design and the like? Yeah, so we don't, you know, we don't actually get into people's heads. So I don't have a way to really know the answer to that. Um, my colleagues report, there's an interesting, my friends at the Denver Museum of Natural History talk about the, the creationist tours that come through all the time through their using the exhibits for justified uh, positions. And in fact, we, we, we're operating on a premise that basically says we're not actually telling you anything. We're giving you opportunities to discover things on your own. Um, so I don't really know how I could answer that question. You know, I, the, the Bay Area population is sort of different than other populations. We have a lot of tourists. Uh, people have the ability to hold many different views simultaneously. Um, we've, by that I mean we've had a big debate in the Exploratorium between our science staff and others about how to deal with science and religion, and whether we should or not, even as issues, or how do we deal with meaning and issues like that. And it's not, it's, it's actually a pretty interesting and complex question to study. regarding evidence right. and the question is do you guys get feedback on that? Well, that's not up yet so we'll find out that's kind of kind of going out we're going out there on the edge no 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 it's going on the edge I mean we don't shy away we have a very strong scientific we don't shy away from that there's been a lot of controversy by the way in a science museum field you may have read about where uh, there's an evolution IMAX film that some museums didn't play in the south and it's hugely controversial because their argument was we don't want to play things you know, we're, we're trying to be open to our visitors, and other people say, no, come on, you, you, got, you are a science museum. Let's. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know. One of the things I'm really struck by having worked at the Exploratorium is that this, you know, people are pretty complex and interesting, and they can hold multiple views at the same time. There's people on our staff who can talk about horoscopes, and they work at the science museum, and it's not a problem, you know. <laughs> and um, I, I, I'm just a firm believer that, that, that you, as long as we don't, we're not going around, we are about science. Here's another interesting feature that was pointed out to me. Um, we don't actually proselytize a point of view, at least we've never had. Frank has certainly had a position not to. He didn't get into what you should do about the environment. His view was you had to have a place where people could learn about the, the, the world of science and physics, with the world, basically, and understand how it works, but not to tell people what to do, because he felt that actually was, um, was a mistake. There are other science centers, the one just opened in uh, Liberty Science Center in um, across the bay from New York that has made its mission to be an advocacy museum. And that's, that's an interesting idea. I mean, it, I think these are all great debatable questions about what you do in places like this. Well, I think it's very interesting that uh, you, you brought up a point which I had never, I really never thought of. And that is, 
here at Stanford, I don't think we really teach people how to do science. It's done as a, as a it's more of an apprenticeship program than anything else. You learn how to do research by doing research under somebody who knows how to do research. And that's probably not the most effective uh, mechanism. Um, <coughs> you think that the training, I mean, I know that the last time that anybody uh, outside of scientific philosophy courses talked to me about how you do research was probably in the ninth grade or the tenth grade when I was doing chemistry. Um, I wonder if a, a more formal approach to how to, how to, how to process facts to create science um, might not be an interesting thing. And certainly the exploratorium has a place where it, it motivates that. And you know, watching watching kids last last uh, uh, last uh, morning uh, going through and performing uh, experiments and taking notes and trying to figure out what exactly the instructions really meant uh, was was an extremely interesting exercise to watch. And to see a four-year-old elbowing his way through uh, into a group of eight-year-olds to take control also interesting. It's a, it's a place which is very <coughs> compelling to the curious. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I mean, a lot of science, it's, it's almost like craft knowledge you're learning to become a scientist, right? I mean, it is through mentorship, and uh, it's a wonderful process that clearly works, and people become part of a community that's kind of hard to define, but we kind of know it when we see it. Um, I'm struck by universities, and I'll give you my pet peeve here, pet idea here. All of the people who are in Congress today have gone through a university. They've all gone through processes of general education at university processes. And I would, I would make the point that actually the focus, a lot of people in university, which is great, are working, well, what can we do about K-12 education? That's great. But what about undergraduate education in science? What does it mean? Why do you teach non-scientists about science or about process? I mean, is it, what is that about? I'm not sure I know how to do it, but I would argue we ought to try to figure that out as well, because that group of people have an effect on the world of science as much as, in a sense, the, the people that are going through the apprenticeship uh, professional model. It's not clear that a watered-down pr professional development model is the way to go if you've got someone for one course. And it's also not clear that it's you know, the greatest hits from astronomy or whatever the, the other stuff was, at least that I used to teach. Well, what is it? What would be a good course to talk about? That's why we're trying to grapple with evidence. It's been fascinating to understand how to think about the nature of scientific evidence for lay public, because it's not data. Data is what people think of evidence. They think, you know, that's what they were taught in school. It's data. Data is not evidence. We know famous Millikan uh, experiment oil drops. Half his oil drops were off on the other side. He just put a line through them and said, those are not good data. You know, I mean, it, it, he had a theory that was actually correct. The data was not fitting his theory. It's, well, me too. No, I, they were all off in my case when I did it. That's right. Isn't what, so, you're, isn't what you're talking about evidence here, though, really uh, an attempt to, uh, to go for impact, to, to teach the inference mechanisms whereby you take a set of information and deduce what the effects are from the, from the cause? Sure. And, 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 and I think, and one of the things about that, by the way, at the Exploratorium is people get it wrong as well as they get it right. You have to live through that because that's actually the inference thing that you're talking about. Sometimes things are related, and sometimes it's, they're coincidental. Right? And, and how do you do that? So, but you have to actually do it a lot to figure that out. And you have to make a lot of false 
assumptions to get to the right ones and, and have that experience. And uh, I think the, I think the, 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 um, the environment that we have does engage people in trying to actually start to figure things out for themselves. And that's probably the, the power of that space. Do you have any idea what's <coughs> causing the, uh, the problem with the science, te science teaching and, or science learning in, with kids nowadays? Um, yeah, let's see, there's a variety of things. Um, let me start. First of all, I'll give you a fact you probably don't know. You, do you know how much science education through K through 12 a kid will get how many hours? It's 1,000 hours. 1,000 hours is half of a working year. That's it. That number is not changing. It's not going to get any bigger. There's so many other competing demands. So the answer is lots of other things are happening in school besides science. And we haven't integrated science into the other stuff that's happening in school. So the problem is you've got this slot stuff. More recently, uh, of course, lots of other things have gotten into play, like literacy, math, language, um, things that actually are crowding out the science at the elementary level. So now it's actually much less than it used to be at the elementary level. Um, I think the, you know, everyone talks about and knows the fact that, of course, the teaching workforce is not, the, the professional development of teachers is a complete crisis. It is not professional development. It, what we have is a system that's basically a holdover from uh, a, a, a system that was put in place in the last century to, to create literacy in the populace. And it works very well for that, but it does not work well for anything else, any kind of other order of ways of thinking. And teachers are professionally developed in probably the most abysmal way. They're not professional. They're not, it's not a professional system. They get a little bit of training. And they're very good, by the way. They're very talented. This is not about them. It's about the system. They're very, they get a little bit of training beforehand. They get dumped into the system. And I'm, I'm talking a little bit of training. You know, it could be as little as, as six months or something like that. Or they get dumped into a system without much mentorship, with no mentorship usually. No ongoing professional development. They're not treated as adults because they don't have even offices and phones. It's considered to be a nine-month job, which I think is a problem. It's not considered, therefore, really serious. If it was like a 12-month job where you could spend two or three months on your own education, which every other profession does. And then they're not in charge of their own lives. Almost all their professions, be it doctors or scientists or engineers, they're, they're in charge a lot about their life. The standards are set by them. They, their peer group is important to them. That's not the case for teaching. So there's no professionalization anywhere in that system. And the people that teach teachers are not in schools are not professional. There's not a professionalization there either. That's a big part of the problem. Um, you know, and then you can talk about the, 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 the fact that we have local school boards in the country, local school education, which dealing with a topic like how to teach science is a fairly, I wouldn't say sophisticated, but a fairly uh, specific task. And they get to choose the textbooks. We just went through a textbook adoption in California. I don't know if you know that. Elementary, there are, there are five textbooks you could choose. And the way textbook adoption, you can, the state picks which ones, and then you, as a district, get to pick which one of the five. And you talk to the salesmen who come through, because it's a business. And then there's a, there's a committee of four or five people, some who know science and some are done, basically look at these things and say, OK, we'll, take, we'll choose this one. And it could be that it's really great. There's a good curriculum like FOSS, which is highly inquiry-based. It could be that this district chose that one because they already have the reading one from, from Harcourt Brace, and so they get a deal in terms of the expense on the science one. You know, it, it's the content in school districts is provided completely by the uh, uh, by the textbooks by a commercial enterprise. It's a, it's an insane system. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry to end on such a bleak note. On the other hand, I would say interesting enough for, for 
for a lot of science people, they actually work their way through that system because they're independent folks. The people I worry about are people who could be good scientists, but for other reasons are blocked because uh, women, for example, had a, uh, girls have a really hard time in the transition in certain parts of the curriculum. Um, certain people with language issues, it's, it's completely locked out because that part has gotten so messed up in their education, they can't go on to do the other parts. And, and so there's a lot of barriers, it seems to me, and not very many uh, incentives in uh, unlocking the barriers. So are we, are we going to lose out and uh, not have the uh, continuing train of students which are going to I, fill the universities and provide us so, with students? So I'll give you one more piece of depressing news. <laughs> there's a study called the ROSES study, R-O-S-E-S. -E it was done in Europe, and there's U.S. data to back it up, which shows that in the countries that have the most advanced uh, technologically uh, base or highest SES, uh, socioeconomic status, that has the, the students in those and the parents have the least interest in having their kids going on into science. And it's in the, it's in the developing countries where the interest amongst the parents and the students is the highest. And it turns out that they just did a study in the US that one of the biggest factors of kids not going into science and not having a good science program is parents are not saying science is what I want my kids to go into. They don't think it's a good career choice for them. And so there's actually a big problem now developing, which was not the case, by the way, 30, certainly in my generation, it was not the case. Science was actually considered to be a great career choice. It's now actively not being considered by parents of kids who are making career choices. That's a big problem. So I think we, I, that's why the science society thing is so critical. I think we have to get into the society and not be separate. Other questions? Yeah. Right. Could we just why on that last? Why? Yeah. I can give an example. I have a daughter who has a PhD in physics, and she's good at it. She just got a paper published in Science Magazine. She's doing her postdoc with IBM Missouri. She does not want to teach in the university. Where do you think she's going to find a job? She wants to do research. She wants to be a scientist. There are no corporations supporting basic research labs anymore. So she's pretty stuck right now. And it's not an easy discussion. That's one reason. The economics for the job market is, is, uh, is, not, is not good, right? And it's particularly bad in So that's interesting. I mean, you know, although, you know, there are other places that people can go with science backgrounds, but, but, but that's, I think, a big issue is that. It's also not considered, um, other things have risen up in the pantheon of things that are good for people to do, and science is actually not where it was. It, it's, it's dropping a bit. You know, the science scandal, by the way, this is interesting. I didn't focus on it recently. The science scandals have had a big impact on people's perception of the scientific community, much more than I'd realized. Recent studies have shown these very few things that you've heard about, like the stem cell study from in Korea, and these some of the medical studies are actually lowering people's confidence in scientists being objective and independent. And they're now more and more people think that they only do things for their own purposes, for their own money, and for their own pocketbook. That was not the case 15 or 20 years ago. And there's not very many, not much of that's happened, but it's amazing the power of those studies on people's perceptions of what we do as, as, as as people, as scientists, as researchers. Yeah, I have a question about just how the exploratory, if you're looking to foster um, students or children asking why stuff works, um, and the difference between asking why and asking how something <coughs> works, and if you approach those two questions differently. Well, I don't, that's, a, that's interesting. I've never thought about 
that. I would, my first principle would say, I don't necessarily make a distinction at the first level about the asking of a question in those two directions. Um, I think later on it might get to be tricky, but in a sense, the connection of something, particularly when you're at interactive exhibit, the sort of the, the why and the how are kind of sort of coupled in, in, in those environments in a way that's, it's not a theory, we're not, we're not dealing with an abstract uh, theoretical question here. We're dealing with like exhibits that are showing real phenomena. So the interaction is pretty direct, and I would say there isn't much of a differentiation between those two, two points. So my question was, if I remember the Exploratorium, and uh, I'm embarrassed to admit it's been a while since I've been there. It's been, your model was kind of almost a Montessori school type of model. The hand teaches the mind, play with things and see where you go. Is that kind of the model that we should have for K through eight science education too? Should we have a less structured program that encourages people less memorizing facts and more just exploring? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I think fact. You know, there's a lot of time to learn facts. Our, our current standards in the state of California are abysmal. We went from some of the best science standards in the world to some of the worst because they went from experiential standards to to content standards, members say, you have to now know the periodic table in the third grade. You know, do you all know the periodic table? I can do a test here. So, I mean, the, you have to learn how to learn the facts. I mean, you have to learn how to learn stuff. That's true. But, but the, the notion of the interplay of, I mean, the um, you know, notion of light and shadow, and, and, and so what happens with light and shadow and experiencing that is really critical, and having those experiences stay with you too. So I would argue that's the K-8 experience of that, not this other. And, and there's, there's a lot of time to do the other work in later grades. And I mean, you can't do one or the other, but I think it's way shifted the wrong way. And you should, you should take a look at a current California State textbook if you want to be horrified about science. But look at the four textbooks that are out there now. They're, they're chock full of facts. Disconnected, I would say. One, every page is disconnected from the next page. That's the thing that's really problematic. We don't live in a scientific society. You just came out and said that. Sure. I was going to ask, um, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you're saying we should put the emphasis more on kids following passions and kids following interests and less on the, on the road facts. And, you know, we live in a day and age where, you know, our biggest industrial competition is coming from places like China where the emphasis really is on you memorize these facts, you take these standardized tests, you do this, and you know a lot of people are predicting that we're going to be competing with China on a scientific front. You know, not just in, on an industrial front, but you know, soon they're going to start picking up uh, where you are. And so, you know, it's it, you know, China I think is an extreme example of you don't have passions, the Chinese government says you don't and right. you fall, you learn facts. So so I would say that um, for a long time, there's been, you know, it uh, wasn't much China, but there was this great interest in following the Japanese model of education. And all these people are going on planes over to Japan to study them. And if they looked out the window, they would have seen all these Japanese educators on planes coming to the United States to study our system. <laughs> because it turns out that they've actually modified theirs in Japan to our system much more because they realized they weren't getting where they needed to go based on the rigid testing, the memorization, and the learning that that was providing. And the same, is, the same is actually happening in China. If you really talk to educators there, they know that this is not, I mean, there's, there's a need for a skilled knowledge workforce. And that's not, but that's not the only thing that's needed. And they are desperate. The reason they're putting so much more money into science and science education is they're trying to up the creativity component, which would, in fact, be competitive. 
you know, and, and uh, so I mean, but, but they realize that that's what they need. They need this other part. They need the kinds of stuff that we're talking about. That's why they're putting a lot of money into science museums. They're going to actually put science museums in every second tier uh, major city in China in this next five years because they want to invest in that side of the equation and they know they're not getting it through the, the, the more rigid formalized education system. So are you arguing that informal education is a much more effective way of fostering interest and creativity? Uh, I guess I am. I'm saying that the key thing in education is, is, is kind of uh, interest and motivation and then some kind of sustained environment for learning, opportunity to learn, and you, need, you need, kind of need both of those things. And I would say the schooling side is a, is a problem for a lot of good reasons, I'm not, just not faulting them, to maintain this interest side. And there's some people who would argue that actually the whole inquiry side is difficult to maintain in a, in a, in a school system for a variety of reasons. The, people, the, the, the teachers are not skilled in it and the equipment isn't there to actually provide that. I'm, I'm not going to go that far, but I would argue that you need to have this informal side. And my, on, by the way, to my informal colleagues, I'm saying you have to pay attention to serious education. You can't just, you know, you have to pay. What, what are your exhibits? You have to tell me what your exhibit. Are your exhibits educational? You know, are they are they mechanical dinosaurs, or do they actually have some 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 educational value here? So it's not just a show and tell game. So I mean, there's a serious, I think, discussion on both sides. Anybody and else? Hired you guys all out. <laughs> no. Great. So, so what's going to be the problem 20 years from now? In, in terms of what? Science education or in the yeah. world? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more along the lines of science education. What's the exploratorium going to look like? Um, so I, um, in the 60s, we um, went from, um, let's see if I can get this straight. We went from the notion of the deauthoritization of education, I believe. We went from the fact that the authority was key to the fact the individual was key. And if you really look at the revolution that happened there, that was really what happened. Students, learners became the drivers of the world of, of learning in a sense. And people, people got that picture. Now we're going through the deinstitutionalization of education because of the internet and everything else. And what I, the reason, by the way, I didn't talk much about that center part about extended learning or about learners. But, but our sense is that actually institutions like ours are going to be places that people will be coming for more extended learning, more learning opportunities over time. And in a sense, we're going to start to compete with you guys here at the university because these opportunities for, for learning in a more structured way can happen in different places because the institutionalization is starting to move away from education because of the technologies that, that, that you guys are inventing here, I mean, that, that are around here. Because now you get a choice as a learner where you do your learning from, where you get that, that, that experience. So that's how we're trying to position our institution to be a, 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 a sort of a hub for that kind of experience and kind of a, a, an educational enterprise that would work in that domain. Now we'll see. I mean, I'm not taking away uh, notions of institutional value and, and the notion of public getting together in place and all of that, but I just think that the, the world's going to shift uh, somewhat dramatically as this, as in, in the future in that direction. You don't agree? No. Oh. What, what's your favorite exhibit? Oh, my God. Oh, that's a bad one. The one, probably the one I built. No, um, um, no I, don't, I, don't, um, I don't answer that because um, uh, I would have to say that the most interesting exhibits for me have been the perception exhibits because I came as a physicist, but to have exhibits about 
the way the eye works and the way perception works is pretty amazing. And we've got some amazing ones up there. And the other one is there's a, a guy, actually, we're, we're just having a memorial for him on Sunday. Bob Miller was an artist at the Exploratorium for many years, and he died last month. He does something called a light walk where he goes out and, and walks around the outside of the building and talks about light. And he talks about light not from the physics point of view. We have the light source and the lens and the object. He talks about it from the end product, the, the thing that's in your eye and works the equation backwards. And he's built a set of exhibits that show some of that stuff that's amazing, including something I never thought I'd ever see, which is a negative pinhole. He actually shows that you can, just how you have pinhole images, you can have a negative pinhole. Obvious, but I never thought of it. So it's, the exhibits that came from him are some of my most favorite. Did you buy our kids for Christmas? What should you buy? <laughs> well, I can tell you. Um, Exploratorium. No, no. Well, that, well, yeah, uh, Exploratorium Pass would be good. But we, we published a book called Exploratopia, which is a book, uh, the big book of science, it's Little Brown, which is a book of, of, of inquiry explorations you can do in your home, outside your home, for kids. And it's a, it's a great book. I'd recommend that. Uh, in terms of the science toys, the Slinkies made a comeback again. Every... I forgot if it had some kind of memorial. I think it must be like the 25th or the 50th anniversary of the, the winding of the Slinky, right? So that's a good thing. Slinkies are endless fun. Um, what else? Come to our store. Visit our store. We have it in there. Okay, well, I guess that's it unless somebody has a burning question. Thanks very much, Carl. For information on other online Stanford seminars and courses, please visit study.stanford.edu. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.